Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It, am I the only one who feels like April just flew by? I woke up this morning and saw it was May 1st, and I was very confused. I love our call to worship this morning. God says this in Isaiah. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither um, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This semester, I've been personally walking through the book of Exodus, uh, both for my own personal benefit, but also because I've been walking through it with an RUF student. And all the while, I've been listening to Kevin DeYoung's sermons through Exodus. He's one of the professors that I've had at RTS in Charlotte. And a phrase that he's repeated nearly every sermon. Well, he borrowed it from someone, and now I'm borrowing it from him, because that's what preachers do. But I love the phrase. This is what he said. In the beginning, God made man in his image. And ever since then, we have been returning the favor. Basically, what this quote is trying to get at is the idea that every human struggles with thinking of God as if he is a man. Assuming that he is just like you and me. We think God is impatient, unkind, temperamental, tired, lonely, annoyed, irritated, has a short fuse. Because these are all things that we see in ourselves and we also see in others. And yet here is a church. Dr. Campbell talked last week about the importance of renewing our minds. And part of renewing our minds is coming to the word of God and saying, God, teach me who you are. I have my idea. I have my, my thoughts about who you might be. But Lord, show me. Show me who you are. And that is what our text is today. Showing us the character of the Lord in the book of 2 Peter. As Dr. Campbell said, I'll be finishing up 2 Peter over the next three weeks uh, while Dr. Campbell is away enjoying time with his new grandchild. And once again, thank you, Dr. Campbell and all the members of the session. This is um, being able to preach this church is a blessing that I'm not worthy of. So thank you. Lately, if you've been able to hear these sermons, Peter has spent a long time in this one book going after false teachers. The entirety of chapter 2 was about that. And, and this is a church that Peter loves. He's told them about the promises of God. He's urged them to live faithfully. He even told them that he was about to die, and that's why he's still telling him these things again. And so here we are in chapter 3, and he is still dealing with the problems of the false teachers, particularly concerning the coming of Jesus. We as Christians, we believe that Jesus became a man and came and dwelt among us some 2,000 years ago. But we also believe that he's coming again. And Peter spends an entire chapter on this because one of the worst false teachings ever is when a church denies the return of Jesus. When a church denies the return of Jesus. This can be done actively by saying that or passively by just never talking about it. And so last time that I preached, Peter was answering the question, is Jesus really coming back? And he said a hearty yes. And this week the question is, well, why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Surely, as a believer, at some point this thought has crossed your mind. And Peter's answer is, God is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. And that is why Christ has not returned yet. 
Particularly, we're going to see this in three ways. We'll see that he is long-suffering because he is everlasting. He is long-suffering because he is patient. And he is long-suffering because he is rich in mercy. Let us pray before we dive into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impress upon our minds and our hearts your character. We so often think of you as if you are a person, as if you are changeable, as if you are not constant. But Lord, please reveal to us your character and your nature this morning. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. So our first point, uh, the Lord is long-suffering, in particular, in verse 8, because he is everlasting. He is everlasting. Let me read verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This should be ringing a bell in your mind because we just sang this. It's a beautiful truth, and Peter is totally trying to get us to think about Psalm 90 as we deal with this question of why hasn't Jesus come back yet. So let me read the first four verses of Psalm 90 real quick, and just listen to how Moses thinks about the Lord. He says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, And the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as the watch in the night. I hope you can notice it because this psalm is just, it's oozing with the truth that the Lord is eternal. He is everlasting. And you and I are not. We had a beginning. We were born and we will have an end of this life. But the Lord never had a beginning and he will never have an end. In Daniel 7, he's called the Ancient of Days. In Deuteronomy 33, he's called the Eternal God. And in Isaiah 9, he's called the Everlasting Father. He is the only being who truly is. And it's worth asking the question, why does Peter bring this up? This church is dealing with this question of why isn't Jesus here yet if he loves us so much? And this is the first thing that Peter brings up. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to remind us that God is not a man. His relationship to time is far different than yours and mine. The the, the Lord created time. He created months. He created weeks. He created the day. All of it. And so really, we as people, if we are to think that the Lord is being slow, or he doesn't know what he's doing, and according to time, is putting God beneath that which he created, because he created time. This would kind of be like, say, I don't know if there are any uh, book writers in the room, people who love to write. This would be like saying, you write a book, and all of a sudden, you are now trapped in the book's world, and you can only, sorry, you're stuck. You, can't, you, you have to abide by the rules that you created. And that, that makes no sense. The Lord created time. He is above it. He is everlasting. And yet, at the same time, Moses is not saying this, thinking that God is far off. You know, God is above time. He doesn't care about me. No, it's actually the opposite. Moses says, Moses points to God's everlasting nature, not to show that he is distant, 
But actually, he takes it to mean that God is near. Notice what he says. He says, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Why? Because you're everlasting. It's not saying that God is simply outside time and kind of aloof and deistic. No, he cares about us. He cares about his people. Yes, a thousand days are like one in his sight, but he still speaks to us and cares for us minute by minute. Which is a response to this idea of why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why is the world full of sin? Why is there strife amongst families? Why are there problems in America? Why is there a war going on in Ukraine? Peter's first answer to these questions is, the Lord is everlasting. He knows what he's doing. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27 Say some beautiful words in this. It's, the psalmist says, Of old, God, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Have you ever had an old jacket that started like wearing out? It was no good anymore. All things will wear out like a garment, but the Lord will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but the Lord is the same, and your years have no end. I love not just what Peter says here, but also how he says. If you look back at verse 8, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. It's so easy to just pass over that. He says, don't overlook this beloved. He loves these people. He loves this church. And he is doing such a pastoral thing, a gentle rebuke. He's not coming in here with guns blazing. He's gently showing that he loves them, but also showing what they are so apt to forget. Because the word that he uses here to say, do not overlook this one fact, is the same word that he used above in verse 5 to warn the false teachers not to overlook parts of the Bible. In the same way that false teachers are prone to forget key parts of Scripture, Peter shows that he is a good pastor by the fact that he assumes Christians will forget truths about God's character. So why does this matter? Whenever we think we know best when Jesus would return, are we not making God into our own image? Are we not questioning his character, making our understanding and our perception of things the rule by which the Lord is judged? And this applies not just to Jesus' return, which we all long for. It applies to much smaller things as well. What about an untimely loss of a job? Or waiting to find a job. Or difficulties with your marriage or your family. Or a stressful season at work. A longing for a spouse. A longing for a child. An illness. A, mis a mistimed flat tire. Maybe your phone broke. Whatever the situation. Surely every single one of us can commiserate with the feeling that. Of saying in our hearts at some point. God if only you were on my schedule. Everything would be way better. Things would just work out fine. And you want to know what's really interesting? In all of the year of COVID, a year, two years, however it affected you, I don't think I ever heard one person be like, man, perfect timing. <laughs> Thank you, God. I'm guilty of that, too. I just, I just point that out to show how untrusting we are of the Lord. 
Not only of the grand thing of Christ's return, but also of the smaller things. He is everlasting. He knows what he's doing. Now, this next point, I, I don't claim to fully understand what this means to you, but I want to point it out because I think it helps me. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus is talking about that day when he returns. And he says, no man knows the day or the season, not even the son, but only the father. I don't, I'm not going to walk through entirely what that means, but I do want to say this. Do you realize that Jesus and his humanity in heaven right now feels the passing of time like you and me? As he waits in heaven, waits to see his bride, he understands the agony of the passing days. He feels time as you and I do in his humanity. And that, that gives me comfort. So the Lord is long-suffering, especially as he relates to time. But we're going to see in the beginning of verse 9, the Lord is also patient. He's also patient. Let me read the first part of verse 9. Peter says, The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Whenever I've read this verse, I can't help but think about that scene. Lord of the Rings, this is for you, Dr. Campbell. Um, in the first movie, when Gandalf shows up and he's heading to the Shire, and you know Frodo's running out to meet him, he's heading there for Bilbo's uh, birthday party, and Frodo comes up to him and he says, you're late. And Gandalf looks at him with this suspicious grin and says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Unfortunately, that's not in the book, but it's still a great scene. And th at the very beginning of the movie, this is meant to teach us that wizards know what they do they're doing. Gandalf knows what he's doing. He might seem like he's a silly old man, but he knows what he's doing. Similarly, the Lord knows what he's doing. He's not slow. God is not slow to fulfill his promise. What is his promise? Let's look back at uh, verse 4 in chapter 3. Look up a little bit. Peter says this, that the scoffers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? So this promise here is when Jesus says, behold, I am coming back. I am coming soon. That is the promise that he is talking about. And Peter mentioned this in chapter 1 of 2 Peter as well. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, Peter is trying to, he's trying to get at this church and say, God is not a man. God is not a man. He's different than you and I. He's not being slow. He's being patient. And once again, let's think about who Peter is talking to, this church. This is, this is a suffering people. A struggling church. Being Christians in the first century was not an easy thing. Especially being surrounded by Roman culture. This church was being accosted by false teaching. This church was struggling to maintain unity. And it was striving every day with temptations from the enemy to turn to everything else besides Jesus. Which sounds a lot like our church. Every single one of us faced these temptations to do anything but have faith in Christ. Surely many people in this church that Peter's writing to were thinking, Jesus, that was a pretty good time. Can you come back now? One, one of my favorite musicals, yes, I like musicals, uh, is Fiddle on the Roof. It's a beautiful musical, and there's this very poignant scene at the end 
right when the, the citizens, this Jewish community in Anatevka, in modern-day Ukraine, they receive a notice of eviction from the government that because they are Jews, they must leave. And in this powerful moment, a young man comes up to their rabbi and says, Rabbi, we've been waiting for the Messiah all our lives. Wouldn't it now be a good time for him to come? And the rabbi says, I guess we'll have to wait for him somewhere else. A very powerful moment. And surely that thought has been in your mind at some point, especially when times are hard. We must trust that God's timing is the best timing. And this does not mean that you should never say, Lord, how long? There is a place for you as a Christian to cry out, God, when are you coming back? But we must do so in faith. We must do so in faith. And Peter here has a little jab at the false teachers, because notice what he says. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Right here, he's, yeah, he's getting right at the false teachers. Because they're saying, God, Jesus hasn't come back, he's slow. He's forgotten you. He's, he's just tootling around in heaven. And Peter says, it's the exact opposite. He is slow, but because he's patient, not because he's forgetful. There's a big difference right there. Verse 15 of uh, chapter 3, Peter says, Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is not being slow. He's being patient. And Peter sees it as his job to endlessly remind God's people of this point. Because we so easily forget. Now this word patient, once again, easy, just read it, poo, and move on. But this is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word about the character of the Lord. The, the Greek word makrothumeo, it means, maybe the best way to understand it in English is long fuse. Like, you know, you've never met someone who has a short fuse. You seem like you poke them, bah, they blow up. God's saying is, I have the longest fuse you could ever imagine. Another way to understand this is the image of a pot. Um, have you ever heard the phrase like, ah, I just lost my cool, I boiled over. And whenever people say that phrase, it's kind of like comparing each one of us as a pot, and under the right circumstances and the right heat and the right annoyances, yeah, I will boil over. We'll be angry, we'll get frustrated. And the image that Peter's trying to get us to understand is that God's pot, if you will, is unimaginably large. He knows every evil that's ever been done in this world, and he is being patient towards them. He's being patient. The, the, the Hebrew word for this in the Old Testament is long-suffering. The Lord is long-suffering. And it's worth asking the question, how is God being patient right now? First of all, the Lord judged the angels at the beginning of time when they sinned according to what Peter said in chapter 2. The angels did not have a chance for repentance. The Lord judged them and was just. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And the Lord was just. The Lord flooded the world after waiting for many years and he was just. And this is the hard thing to wrap our minds around. Do you realize that the Lord could have judged Adam immediately for his sin and been completely just. He could have. 
Granted, he wouldn't because he planned before the foundation of the earth to save his church. But we do need to acknowledge that. So in this light, God is being merciful every moment that he staves off the last day. Every moment that Christ waits in heaven to come is a near infinite show of patience. That you and I can hardly begin to comprehend. Surely we can say along with Lamentations chapter 3 that the steadfast of the love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, I pray that all of us would learn to meditate and contemplate the sheer patience of the Lord right now, every moment, each day. And here's a recommendation. If you struggle to comprehend the patience of the Lord, here's my recommendation. Read through the Gospels. And every single time you think to yourself, man, the disciples are thick. They get nothing. Make a mental tick mark. You'll have a lot. And then step two, read the entire history of the Old Testament. And every single time you think to yourself, man, the Israelites are thick. They get nothing. Make another mental tick mark. And all the while pray, God, show me your character. Help me not just to focus on the sin of your people, but help me to focus on the mercy of your character. This is why Jesus hasn't come back. He's being patient. This is a small side note, but I think it's worth mentioning that the, the false teachers in this book had a heyday about attacking Christians on their belief that Jesus was coming back. Which means the Christians were talking about the fact that Jesus was coming back. Enough so that outsiders and insiders had to critique it. And just as a challenge, honestly, to myself while I was studying this, I don't think I talk about Jesus coming back enough. Enough for people to have to respond to it. Which is something worth thinking about. So God is long-suffering, he is everlasting, he is patient, but he is also rich in mercy. That's why he's patient. Look at the last half of verse 9. It says that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Often when people hear of the name of a book of the Bible, they think of like the verse that comes from it. So if I said Ephesians, I'm guessing most of you would think it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no man may boast. Or if I said James, you would think faith without works is dead. There's usually these verse, famous verses attached to books. And this is the verse that's usually attached to 2 Peter. This is the verse everyone thinks about. This is the verse that everyone runs to in the great Calvinism-Arminianism debate. And this is the verse that sometimes makes young Reformed people tremble because they don't know what to do with it. And this is the reason why I decided to spend an entire sermon on these two verses. This is a very misunderstood verse, but it is a very beautiful verse. Because it teaches us about the character of our God. So there's, broadly speaking, two general ways to understand this passage. We're going to Get down into some theology real quick. First, there's the Arminian camp. There's those who believe that man has a free will to choose salvation in some capacity. Some say very little, some say a lot. It's a broad camp. They read this passage, and they see the word all, where he says that the Lord is uh, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. They see all in this verse to mean all. Everybody, that's what it says. That every, visible, every individual who has ever existed is benefiting from God's mercy 
And God does not desire for any of them to perish and suffer eternal punishment, but that they should repent. But the next step is really where they, I'd say, go way wrong. Because then they presume, the Armenian camp, that because God is desirable for repentance towards all mankind, and some don't, then in order to protect the character of God, God must have given every single person a choice, a free will in their salvation. They make this big if-then jump. The problem is that is not what this text is saying. This is talking about the Lord, not you and me. Any teaching that draws a truth about man's nature rather than God's character from this verse both misunderstands basic grammar and is abusing the text. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign, especially when it comes to salvation. He does not step off of his throne when it comes to his church, his children. So that's the Arminian camp. And on the other side of the spectrum, uh, there's the more Reformed understanding of this passage. But I submit to you, often I think Reformed people misunderstand this passage as well. Let me walk through this. It is normative in many Reformed circles to understand this text and say that Peter is writing to Christians here. uh, So the all doesn't actually mean all. Really, the all means every Christian. So it's as if Peter is saying this. God is patient towards this world simply for the sake of his church. And he desires that none of his church would perish, but that every one of his elect people would come to salvation. I think that's a a fair opinion. R.C. Sproul teaches this. I respect R.C. Sproul. So does John Piper, I believe. But I I do not think this is precisely what this text is saying. Martin Luther and Calvin and others stand in slight opposition to that Point of view. So, what is Peter saying? Here we go. Remember the context. Peter is trying to remind people about the character of God, how sheer, how different he is from you and from me. He is God, we are man. And I believe that this verse is plainly saying what it deliberately says God wishes that none would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Does God elect some to salvation? through the sovereign kindness of his will, while choosing others to perish because of their sin? Yes. At the same time, does God earnestly wish that all mankind, even those he condemns, would turn from their sin and come to Jesus through the gospel? Yes. And you might be thinking to yourself, Jack, those those things don't go together. This is the Lord. His ways are higher than his ways. How his mercy interacts with his justice is higher than our ways. Both are true. And I come to this from the scriptures. Let me walk through some passages that show both God's election and God's mercy towards all. So God, before the foundation of the earth, through nothing but the counsel of his goodwill, chose those who would be in his church and those who would be outside. So it's his sovereign act, 100% the Lord. Here's a few passages. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. In him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined, he chose beforehand us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 
2 Timothy 2.19. Paul says this, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. It's not iffy. The Lord knows. And lastly, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb. See, God is sovereign when it comes to salvation and election. We cannot run from that. It is in the Bible. The Lord has given us this truth. And yet at the same time, God's merciful desire towards all people, even those whom he condemns, remains. Here are some passages that help me walk you through this mentality. 1 Timothy, verses two, uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 4, Paul urges this church to pray for all people. And then he says this, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel chapter 18, where Ezekiel goes on this long message uh, uh, teaching the fact that the soul who sins shall die. Like, you're not, you're not guilty for your father's sins. You're guilty for your sins eternally. And he says this in verses 21 through 23. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done shall he live. And this is the, listen. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God takes no pleasure in some senses in the death of the wicked. I've got two, three more. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, this is right after Jesus talks about election. The fact that the Father has hidden some things from the wise and yet revealed them to the weak. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus welcomes all. Once again, let's look at Christ in Matthew 23. After proclaiming several woes of condemnation upon the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, he's weeping over the city, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together, but you were not willing. Even Jesus on the cross looks at all of those who are around him and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There are many more I could go to. But dispositionally, the Lord constantly looks upon the wicked with pity. Even while administering justice. The call of the gospel is to all people and it's relentless. So, so these passages, like this one in Second Peter, they teach us that God's desire as revealed in the gospel is that all men would be saved. Even though at the same time his decree is that only his church should accept it. Another way to think about it is God's wish is for every person to come and taste the goodness of the gospel. Even though his will is that only his children should come. These passages do not prove free will at all, but they prove the gospel, missional heart of the Lord.
So in summary, the Lord is completely sovereign over election, yet not in such a way that he gains pleasure by the death of the wicked, ceases to pity all sinners in their wretched state, or stops freely offering the good news of the gospel to them. Let me say that one more time. The Lord is completely sovereign over election, yet not in such a way that he gains pleasure by the death of the wicked, ceases to pity all sinners in their wretched state, or stops freely offering the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone. I hope you love theology. This is, this, this is some deep stuff. You might be thinking, Jack, this doesn't matter. You lost me five minutes ago. Sorry, but it's what the text is talking about. But I'm saying the character of God matters. It matters, because how we think about God influences how we live. Indeed, if you call yourself a Christian, Jesus himself dwells in you, so if you don't understand his character, you will never understand yourself rightly. God is just, and he is merciful. And I have three applications for why this matters. So, if you miss all everything that just happened, tune in for this, please. Three applications for why God's character, his long-suffering, matters. First, it influences how you evangelize to people. Perhaps just me saying that makes you feel guilt for not doing so. But it influences how you evangelize to people. How do you evangelize? What do you say? We need to interact with sinners similar to how the Lord interacts with sinners. We need to tell them the truth about judgment, condemnation apart from the cross. But what do we say about God? Do we say the Lord is, doesn't really want you to repent? The Lord's perfectly content for you to stay right where you are. Do we say that? Do you tell unbelievers, here's the gospel, I hope you're elect so you can have it. Actually, we don't see that evangelism anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. But what we do see is an earnestness. A love, a fire. This is something Spurgeon was awesome at. We see people saying, God invites you. Come to the wedding feast. The Lord does not want you to perish. Come. Jesus' arms are open wide. The Lord is ready to forgive your sin. There's a beautiful hymn called, Come Ye Sinners. Let me read a couple lines from that real quick. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. And then a couple verses later. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. And I ask, is this the Jesus you present to the world? A Jesus who is just and yet merciful, rich in mercy. Secondly, this truth should affect the way that we all think about the unbelievers we know and interact with. It should affect the way we think about them. How do you think about the unbelievers in the world? Is there mercy in your mind or is there only justice? Is your gut reaction judgment or is your gut reaction mercy? And uh, fully honest, uh, what came to my mind while I was studying this passage was the other day when I was driving through one of the main streets of Anderson, I saw one of the many homeless people who lives here. And I confess that most of my mind was only judgment. Probably wasn't a hint of mercy. And that does not reflect the character of the Lord. 
where there is both truth and grace. And those two doctrines are friends, not enemies. May our disposition towards sinners match that of our Savior. And thirdly, last one, this should make us come to God with our sins. How do you think about the Lord? Do you think that he is rich in mercy or do you think he's poor in mercy? Is he, is he cheap in mercy? Is he stingy? Is he trying to get by and save as few people as possible in your mind? Or do you, do you feel like you're walking on eggshells around the Lord? ready to get at you with his judgment. It's like he's just waiting for you to catch that secret sin just one more time. And I'd say we need to correct the way we think about the Lord because God always desires for us to repent. He's always standing there even for the Christian who's fallen to sin again and again and says, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. And perhaps you're here and you're confused about the Lord and who he is. Maybe you're not a Christian. Are you under his judgment eternally? Yes. Are you under his wrath? Yes. But does he long for you to turn from your sin and taste the goodness of the gospel? Yes. That's what Isaiah 55 says. It says, come to the waters. Come and drink. You who have no money, come and buy. Christ is freely offered to you. There are no prerequisites, no down payments. All you need to do is believe and turn from your sin. If you came to Jesus with no money, you are still welcome to Christ with no money. And some of you Christians need to hear that today. You feel as if God, after years of friendship, you know, has higher, higher expectations of you to receive forgiveness than he did before. No, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died. How much more will we not be saved by the grace of our Father? And to bring it all back in, the false teachers did not understand God's character. And it showed to them, Jesus was just being slow. He's just waiting. He just made false promises. And yet, the single aspect of this passage that just blows my mind is that even those false teachers are in the all. Even those people that harangued and harassed the church of God endlessly, Jesus says, turn from your sins and come to me. Even they. In conclusion, I just want to bring it to the cross, which is we see the justice and the mercy of the Lord best displayed at the cross of Christ. There the Lord was long-suffering. He waited for thousands of years for a sacrifice to come. He chose to punish His Son on your behalf. And He decided this before the world was created. There at the cross, the Lord was patient. He continued to put off judging the sins of His people because He knew Jesus was going to come. And lastly, at the cross, the Father's mercy was perfectly shown. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the free offer of the gospel. And yet at the same time, Lord, I thank you that you are sovereign in all things. Lord, I pray for everyone here who is struggling to understand these things. I pray that they may have faith so that they may understand. And not try to understand so they may have faith. 
Teach us to believe in our Savior and his merciful heart towards us. I ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.